Thank you so much for joining us once again. You haven't left. It's been two times without Pastor Keith, and you're still coming back, and that just encourages me. So uh, I think I said this before, but my name is Matt Ritchie, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to, to be able to serve and lead in this way. And uh, Pastor Keith is on sabbatical, and so some of you, if you're longing for him to come back, I, 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 I feel you, okay? I feel you. So... Um, Anyways, in your Bibles, please turn to 2 Timothy. We actually used this verse last week, although I might have skipped it in a couple of services. I didn't mean to, but in 2 Timothy 3, 16, we're going to start there. And just to kind of give you a recap, if you're just joining us this month, we're in a series called Battle Ready. This is part three. We're talking about using right weapons. Week one, we said uh, kind of using the military as sort of our illustration or our guide for this series where we said that any military commander needs to know his enemy. He needs to know who he's going up against. And in the same way, we need to understand our enemy. But then we admitted, we said, sometimes our own worst enemy is ourselves. And so we need to know ourselves rightly. But more than that, we need to know God rightly. If we understand who he is, and we have not just a know about him kind of knowledge, but we have an intimate personal relationship with him, that is the key to this victory. But then last week, we also said that we need to participate with him in a process that scripture calls sanctification, becoming like Jesus. And, it, and God does the work. He raises us up from death to life, but there is an effort, there is a part for us to play in that process. We kind of use this concept of training versus trying. We're not going to just try to become better versions of ourselves, we're going to train our hearts, our minds in the ways of God. In fact, another way to kind of clarify this is we're going to focus on inputs rather than outcomes. Inputs versus outcomes. In other words, we're going to intentionally put into our lives healthy things. We're going to feed our minds, our hearts with the things of God intentionally. And if we do that, the outcomes, the results will take care of themselves. Jesus illustrated it by using the picture of a vine and a branch. And he used himself in the illustration. He said, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you dwell or abide in me, if you live in me, you put your trust, your hopes, your faith, your dreams, you put those things in me, you live in me you will bear much fruit. In other words, the results will take care of themselves. And then any athlete understands this concept. They don't just show up to the game and just hope to win, focused on only the game. There's this thing called practice, right? Allen Iverson wasn't a big fan of practice for some of you older ones out there that watched the NBA back in the 90s, like when it was a real sport. Anyways, but... Um, <laughs> Athletes, they, they know they have to prepare. If they're going to succeed in any endeavor, they've, they've got to prepare. And the same is true. If we want to succeed in moments of temptation or spiritual conflict or battle, when our enemy confronts us, we need to prepare for those moments in advance. And we talked about that last week. But today, if I were to kind of summarize today what, I, what today is all about, it's weapon, personal weapon systems training. That's what our military calls it. So you're, you're given a, a firearm of some sort in the military, depending on your unit and special specifications, and you're trained on how to use that weapon effectively and properly. And there is a uh, basic understanding of understanding how to use that weapon. And so like, in fact, I thought about using a sword uh, as a visual today because the word of God is described as a sword a couple of times in scripture. That's the metaphor given to us 
in both in Ephesians and in Hebrews. And if, there, if I were to try to draw some parallels from an actual sword to the scriptures, here would be a list of those uh, comparisons. So first of all, both an actual sword and the word of God is described as sharp. It's effective. It's precise. An actual sword requires training and practice to be used effectively. In fact, I tried to get somebody to come to church that I was talking with this week and I said, I may have an actual sword on the platform with me and you never know what might happen. So come back and see what might happen because I'm not trained. I might injure myself. I might do something uh, dangerous and, and so that's why I don't have it with me today. But, um, but a sword, you, you can all picture a sword. A sword is made to be carried easily. It would fasten to the belt of a soldier and would be made to carry, be, be carried everywhere he would, went, he would go. And there would be times when he wasn't always fighting. He'd be marching or, or digging trenches or, or eating or doing something, setting up camp. But the sword was made to be carried easily, not to be set aside. And then um, it is designed for, to be for the benefit of the one who carries it. And then it is designed to endure, to enlast. Those things are all true of the word of God. It's sharp, it's precise, but it requires training to be used effectively. And if, an, I, if I don't use it properly, if I don't have a good understanding of it, I may bring some sort of spiritual hindrance into my life or God forbid somebody else's life by, by being confusing or, and I've seen this happen and God forbid, but I've seen other people use the word of God to tear down other Christians. And we have become far too good as churches and as believers in, in crucifying those who are on our same team. Now, if they're not on our team, hey, we're called to stand for the truth. No, no apologies for that. But we're not gonna misuse the word of God to spiritually tear down those who are with us. And then it's made to be carried every day. The, the Old Testament talks about, and I'm just paraphrasing here, but the, the, the God said even to the Jewish people, he said, I will write my law on your hearts. It's meant to be carried with us and, it's, and, then, it's, and then it's steadfast. It's going to remain. It's going to endure. And so as we dive into this study, I apologize in advance. This may be a little boring. I apologize up front. So if you're a nerd, you're gonna love this, okay? If you have ADHD, you're gonna have to work extra hard, okay? You're gonna have to lean in, okay? And I'm some, probably somewhere in between. Um, I like some of the stuff that we're gonna talk about and it can get me kind of fired up. And I was talking to my wife about it this week and she kind of stifled a couple of yawns, I thought. And she claimed she didn't, but I saw it. And, uh, and so anyways, I'm joking. But the point is, I do think that there is some good information that we as Christians and believers need to understand. Here's the reason why. The word of God is under attack. Can we all agree with that? And there's criticism, there's arguments made, and the scriptures say that we are to be living in a place where we are ready to be ready to give an answer. And I'll just be honest. There are some questions about scripture and about God that I don't fully understand. And honestly, I take comfort in that because if God was so small that I could comprehend him completely, he would not be very much of a, of a God. And so the fact that he is beyond my capacity to comprehend makes him God. But... To the best of our ability, we are called to be ready to give an answer. So I'm going to uh, give you some just Bible basics and maybe a little bit of apologetics today so that we understand not only what we believe, but why we believe it. And so in your notes, I just have three 
points that you can fill in. And I'm going to share a lot of scripture. Last week was a little bit um, what I would call expository, where we kind of looked at one key passage and we just kind of focus on that. I'm all over the place today. So you're not going to be able to follow along in your Bibles. We're going to start in 2 Timothy. And I've already said, if you want the scriptures, if, the, if you want the references, just email me and I'll send you my notes. And, uh, and if it's too many, I'll just have Abby send you my notes. Okay. So, um, let her do it. But um, I'm going to share a lot of scripture, but we are going to start in 2 Timothy. And we actually, like I said, I think I mentioned this verse last week, but we're going to use it again today. Verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And I want to focus on that first phrase in verse 16. All, not some, all scripture is breathed out by God. And so you might say this, who wrote the Bible? Well, God did. But he used, he inspired men to write down his words so that we could have them today. And so let's just talk, dive into a few of the, the Bible basics. This is kind of Bible 101 stuff. The word Bible literally means book. And so what, if you, if you have, if you're looking at your Bible right now, you know that there are books within the, the book, okay? And so many different books, there's 66 books totaling the entire Bible. There's uh, 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 several in the, in the Old Testament. There's 27 in the, in the New Testament. I think that means there's 39 in the Old Testament, if I'm doing my math correct. And it was written over a period of 1,600 years in over a dozen countries across, across three continents by people from all walks of life. So you had doctors, you had fishermen, you had, you had uh, legal, like, like Paul was a citizen of Rome, and then he worked for the Pharisees and he was a, an expert of the law and then he became a missionary. And so like he was a tent maker at one point. So like just one person has different walks of life. And then there were prophets and then there were kings and all of these people. In fact, there were about, there are 40 writers of the scriptures, but only one author, 40, 40 writers, one author. And again, if you're, if you're, following me, there is no possible way that all 40 of them got into the room, into some back room, and determined what they were going to write. They didn't plan it out. 1,600 years spans the time of when these things were written down, and so that was impossible. They didn't know each other. They couldn't have conceived who was coming after them. They had no idea, and so the fact that it is thematically unified speaks to its validity. How did they get it all right. Well, Peter talks about this in chapter one of the second, his second book, second Peter. And in verse 20, it says this, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the spirit. How did they get it all right? How did they tell one concise thematically unified story. It's because they were writing it down, but there was one author who was giving it to them. All scripture is breathed out by God. I would also remind you that it has, as I've already mentioned, it has survived many attacks, not just modern criticism, but in ancient times, there was a king of, 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 of Syria who intentionally 
you, when he took the, the people of Israel into captivity, he ordered that all their scriptures, the books of the law, be burned. Okay, And so this has happened a couple of different times. An emperor of Rome did the same thing where the, the, the scriptures are starting to circulate throughout the early church. And so he ordered the destruction of the actual written down words that were considered scripture. It has survived all of those attacks. And as I mentioned uh, just a few moments ago, even in today, people try to undermine and try to discredit. And there's, there's some scriptures in, in, in the word of God that like, are hard to understand. And it's like, okay, what is the meaning of that? And, and we're gonna talk a, bit about, a little bit about that. But I wanna remind you that the word of God is complete and perfect. That's your first point. The Bible is the complete and perfect Word of God. The words you might come across are inerrant or infallible. It is the complete Word of God and it is the perfect Word of God. It is true. Now, um, let's kind of build on that. Not only is it complete and perfect, but I would say number two, here's the next uh, phrase. The Bible is steadfast truth and provides a foundation for your life. It is steadfast truth and it provides a foundation for our lives. Matthew 7, 24, Jesus says this, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And I've already kind of started down this road, but why, why is the Bible trustworthy? How can we know that it is true? Well, not only does Jesus claim that it's true, the psalmist in, in, in Psalm 33, verse four, he claims that it's true. He says this, for the word of the Lord is upright and true. And if you start to look in extra biblical areas, you begin to find that the scriptures line up with things like history. For example, we know that the Roman empire really existed. And so the scriptures talk about the Roman Empire, for example, and there's historical events, there's whole civilizations that are talked about in both Old and New Testament. And there's archeological evidence that supports the validity of those events, those places, and those peoples. And there's a host of, of archeological evidence. What I'm trying to say to you is that we have uncovered things that you can see, touch, you can see with your own eyes, you can go find it on the internet. There's stones been uncovered. There's been like, for example, like the, the, the high priest Caiaphas, like that tried Jesus when on the night before his crucifixion, his grave, his, his record, his governance is recorded for us. And we have uncovered his like actual artifacts that, that point to his leadership in that time. Same with Pontius Pilate. He's recorded in first century Jewish history, not Christian history, Jewish secular history. He's talked about him and Herod are both recorded. Jesus is actually recorded in secular history. His crucifixion, and, and it says in, 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 the in the antiquities of Josephus that, that some believe that Jesus not only died, but he rose again, and they believe it to this day, 100 years later, and he was talking about that. And so Jesus is recorded, and, and it's been, and, and the, the words and the, the events of history are, they line up. There's also what we have, we have records of eyewitness accounts, the gospels, for example, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those books. We know that those stories, those, those events were recorded and given to us by the people who were actually there. Well, if something were to happen, 
you know, maybe there's a car accident and you're considered a witness to that event. Or maybe there's a crime and maybe you're, you're uh, called as a witness. Why, why are they calling an eyewitness? It's because we know that we, the, most, the best way that we can get the facts of what happened is if somebody it was there and we can get their story, we can get their viewpoint, it's more trustworthy than somebody who wasn't there and just can guess at it. Now, can people lie about it? Sure. That happens. But when you look at the, the theme, again, the, unif- the unity of scripture, the, you get a different perspective from Matthew, you get a different perspective from Luke, Mark, John. They don't contradict. And then all the way back into the Old Testament, the prophecies of Jesus that point to the coming of the Savior. How could they have known? For example, David talks about the process of crucifixion he gets specific in the Psalms about the process of crucifixion. Crucifixion wouldn't be invented for several hundred years later. How could he have described what was to come when he had no concept of it? And so there is, there is unity across the scriptures and it can be trusted because it's historically accurate. It makes sense. There were eyewitnesses, uh, eyewitness accounts. Another evidence to me, and this is, this is played out in scripture as well. The Bible is not a science book, but it is scientifically accurate. Now, there are, are people today that would say, no, no, science and God, science and scripture are opposed to one another. They stand in opposition. I would submit to you just through a few verses that actually the Bible is scientifically accurate. For example, in Isaiah 40, 22, it says this, it is he, speaking of God, who sits above the circle or sphere of the earth. Now, when I was in high school history, I was taught that those guys that sailed across the ocean blue in 1492, they thought that eventually they would reach the edge of the earth and fall off the end because everybody believed the earth was flat at one point. The scriptures all the way back in Isaiah said, no, it's a globe, it's, it's a circle, it's a sphere. And then more than that, it says in Job 26, seven, which some say is probably the earliest book that was written It says this of God, he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth over nothing. See, in ancient times, there was a common belief that the earth was being held up by something or someone. And so in in pagan religions, they believed that there was some God out there that was holding up the earth on his shoulders. Or even in Jewish tradition, there was this idea that there were four pillars holding up the earth because there was no concept of space. How could could something be suspended in space? And so it was a common belief. And so actually one of the evidences that the Bible is true, it didn't just go along with the culture of the day, it declared truth. And it says right there, he hangs the earth in space long before they had the Hubble telescope to to be able to show us. Now that's common knowledge today. We get it today, but it wasn't that way thousands of years ago. More than that, I thought this was kind of interesting. It says in Jeremiah 33, 22, it says the hosts of heaven or the stars cannot be numbered. Now, I'm not sure of the time frame of this, but there was a couple of guys that tried to count the stars in ancient times. And one of them, he counted 1,114 stars, okay? And so Ptolemy, uh, and I'm not sure when Ptolemy lived. I should have done a little bit more research on Ptolemy, but he came along and he said, I'm sorry, but uh, you missed a few. I counted them and there's 1,116. You missed two, okay? 
And I think there's even a thing now where you can like name a star or like buy a star or something. Why? Because they're never gonna run out of them, okay? Because here's what I Googled. I Googled like, okay, like let's see what like, okay, we have some technology. We have some stuff out there. Like what do, what do we say about the number of the stars? So I Googled it and I did come up with a number. Scientists estimate that there are about 2 trillion, not stars, galaxies. Now wrap your mind around that one. We live in one galaxy. We, can, we can't even know the number of stars in our own one single galaxy. And scientists estimate, estimate, they don't know how many, they just are guessing that there's around 2 trillion. That's a really big number. 2 trillion galaxies. What does that confirm? The scriptures are true. The hosts of heaven cannot be numbered. There's a bunch of other stuff. I'll just briefly uh, cover a couple. Um, so you might be familiar with um, just even a few hundred years ago, a process of, of medical treatment. If you were sick, there was a common thought that if we bled, the, uh, if we bled, if we cut you and let the blood out and, uh, for a time, that would help you become healthy again. In fact, our first president, George Washington, died from this because he was sick and the doctors, they, it was called bloodletting. They would uh, intentionally bleed you and they did this to our president three times and he actually, that's what he actually died from. But we know the opposite is true and the scriptures say there is life in the blood. And so what do we do today? When you're sick, we give you blood. My wife's a nurse and she will say, you know, like when on the weekends, when they know that there's gonna be a higher rate of car accidents or, or tragedy, they will stock up on blood in the ER to prepare because they know when people come in that, that life is in the blood. Here's another one. Um, this might give you a little bit of a, a nervous twitch, but um, back in the Old Testament, the priests were told to quarantine people who were sick because the Bible understood that there was this such a thing as germs and you needed to stay away from people to keep from letting it spread. And it was just kind of funny to me that the whole world for a time who most of them didn't believe in God were following the scriptures to the letter, okay? I just found that to be kind of interesting, okay? Now, I didn't like quarantining and there was a part of me that was like, hey, we're all gonna get it. Let's all just touch all the doorknobs and let's just get it over with. And that might, that might've been too cavalier, but the point is this, the scriptures, long before there was this concept of germs and pathogens, God understood how to keep his people healthy. Hey, when you're sick, go and be by yourself for seven days and then, then you can reacclimate to society. It was, it, so it's scientifically accurate. It's not a science book, but it's scientifically accurate. Some other things that I would like to point out to give us some uh, understanding of, of the Bible and understanding like that it's not, just, it's not just full of some good ideas, it's really true. And it has evidence that we can see and understand. There's this idea of textual criticism and this is gonna, where it gets really boring and I apologize. But just to give you an idea of the evidence we have for scripture, let me just give you a few statistics. So Plato, uh, a renowned philosopher from ancient times, we have a total of seven copies of his writings. In other words, he wrote down some, some really smart stuff and then hundreds and even uh, 1,200 years goes by before we, and somebody copied them all through the eons. They just copied them down and to preserve them. And we have a total of seven of his writings 
copies of his writings. And the earliest one dates back to, to just about 1,200 years from the time he lived. And when you examine this idea of textual criticism, when you look at an ancient copy or a manuscript of an ancient work, the more accurate or more reliable it is when you can get it, when you can date it closer to the time the author lived. So if this document had been written, uh, the copies we have were within 500 years of when Plato lived, that would be considered more authentic and more accurate. You get, you following me? Okay. So Tacitus, he was another historian. He, we have a total of 20 of his works, and they date back to about with, within a thousand years of, the, of when he lived. So we have more of his stuff, and it's, it's closer to when he lived, so it's considered more authentic. Aristotle, we have 49 copies of his work, and they date back to within 1,400 years of when he lived. And so these three, Aristotle, like no one goes around questioning Aristotle, really. He's considered, okay, like he's a pretty smart guy. Homer's Iliad in, in the ancient textual world is considered the shining beacon of like just this, like just stands head and shoulders above anything else. We have 643 copies of Homer's Iliad and there's enough that we can actually compare them. So this copy and this copy, we can compare them side by side and we can say, okay, they, they pretty much match. And there's 95% accuracy between them. And there's a lot. There's 643, and they date really close to when Homer actually lived. He, they date to within 500 years of when he actually lived and would have written them down. Why am I sharing all this? Because I want to show you what the New Testament has. The New Testament has 5,808 Greek manuscripts. They boast 99% accuracy or textual purity, and they date to within 100 years of when the events actually took place. More than that, so not only do they have thousands more, there, there, is, there is a higher degree of accuracy. And by the way, some of you might be sitting like, I thought you said the word of God was perfect. What about that 1%? There are, in the, in, in when people are making copies, there are little typos and mistakes here and there. There are slight differences, but not a single one changes the meaning of the scriptures. The word of God, the truth of God has been perfectly preserved. In fact, it's not just in Greek, but there are 19,000 copies in other languages such as Syriac, Latin, Coptic, Aramaic. That brings the total manuscript of the New Testament, just the New Testament, to 24,000 copies. What am I trying to say? It means that this is an overwhelming amount of physical evidence and it confirms the validity of the scriptures and Christian and secular scholar, scholars alike agree that nothing else comes close. Nothing else comes even close. In fact, Dr. Jordan Peterson, anybody know who Jordan Peterson is, okay? I find this absolutely hilarious. He's considered one of the brightest and most important public intellectuals of our time, and he's doing a Bible study. <laughs> like, that's what he's doing. He's making videos of the study of Genesis and Exodus, and he did a documentary, and I'm not even sure he's a believer. I don't think he's a Christian, but he did a documentary called Literacy and Logos, which is a study of the Bible, and he calls the Bible this. He says it's the world's most significant book. Nothing else comes close to the word of God. And so what am I trying to convince you of? The Judeo-Christian ethic, it works. It works. 
It works in your relationships. It teaches honesty and forgiveness and faithfulness and loyalty and love. We know that those things make our relationships better. It works in business. It works in finance. It, it helps us understand leadership and vision and stewardship and responsibility and principles like hard work and telling the truth. Those things play, those things advance your business and, 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 and make your finances healthier. It works in government. It, it gives us a guide for proper laws and justice and, and complex issues like war and immigration. It gives us a guide for those types of issues. It works in government. It works even in your personal health that I just talked about a little bit. It gives us a guide even for, for medical treatment, but also nutrition. What am I trying to say? It's worth building your life upon the word of God. It is a firm foundation. And finally, the word of God, the Bible, is a sword to the enemy and a scalpel to the one who believes. What do I mean by that? Well, there are two passages in scripture that describe the word of God as a sword. The first is in Ephesians, and it says in verse 16, all circumstance, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit. When it comes to dealing with the temptation, the spiritual battles that we so often encounter, you know those moments where you know that there's something before you, the enemy puts something in your mind or in your heart or right in front of your face and it's like, okay, this is, this is wrong, I should not be engaged with this, what do I do? But, well, Jesus gives us a picture of how to use scripture as a sword to the enemy. In fact, in Matthew chapter four, there's a peculiar story, an event that took place in the life of Christ. He's been baptized by John the Baptist and he's ready to begin his public ministry here on earth. But before he does that, the spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness. And I wanna be clear, God did not tempt Jesus. He was not the author of temptation. But God allowed Jesus to experience direct spiritual opposition from Satan not only to provide us confidence that Jesus was sinless, but to give us a guide, a model of how to do this and how to live this out ourselves. And Jesus is tempted three different times. And in the last temptation, we read these words. This is from Matthew 4.10. It says, Jesus said to Satan, he said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, and he quotes scripture, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He, he quoted scripture in every instance. And then it says this in verse 11, then the devil left him and behold, the angels came and were ministering to Jesus. So he, he used scripture directly to replace, to fight against the lies of the enemy. I like how Craig Rochelle breaks this down in his book, Winning the War in Your Mind. I think I've men mentioned this book before and this is, it's a powerful practical book, but he talks about his personal process of how he uses scripture to fight against the lies of the enemy. And he was honest about some of his insecurities as, as he was growing up. There were things that happened in his uh, boy, boyhood and other things that happened in his young adult life that led to insecurities in his adult life. And so even though he was a Christian and was living full of the spirit and following God, in his moments of weakness, he'd find, he'd find the, the voice of the enemy to be all too close and too real. How many of you ever felt like you failed something, failed in some area, maybe you've even fallen and sinned in some way and the enemy will be right there be like, you're an idiot. It. you're stupid, you're a moron, how could you do that? And that negativity starts to become ingrained in our heart and mind. We've probably all been there in some form or fashion. 
And Craig Rochelle was talking about like those lies that the enemy will fire at you. Those are the kind of the fiery darts. He's firing those at you. What do you do in that moment? He said, well, we're gonna go to the word of God. And he said, what I did, he said, I would intentionally think about the specific fear, anxiety, insecurity, weakness, whatever it might be. And he would, I would search the scriptures for verses that would directly help me replace those lies with the truth of God. And this is an example. This is not specifically from the book, but this is an example of what that might look like. Let's say you're dealing with failure or shame due to a sin, or maybe, maybe it's just a low point and you're just thinking in those, those thoughts, I'm an idiot, I'm a sinner, I can't do anything. They're in your mind. So some scriptures that may replace those. These are just some common easy ones. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 2 Corinthians 5 that I read in the communion uh, time. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And so what Craig Rochelle would say, he would say like, take those scriptures and write a, a battle statement. And here, and this is an example of what that battle statement might look like based on the truth of the word of God. Instead of saying, I'm an idiot, I'm a sinner, I can't do anything. Here's my battle statement. I am a new person in Christ and today he calls me to live pure in mind and heart. I will do this by operating in his strength, not my own. What am I trying to do? I'm trying to equip you to use the word of God to fight against the enemy. A story I heard, I, I believe it was a, a man in our church and I, I, it was years ago that he told me this and I actually don't even remember who told me. Okay, so the mind's going, I'm, I'm sorry. But um, he told me a story about how his wife was dealing with just severe insecurities. Like she couldn't even go into public without, like going to the store and going out into public would just give her just almost like a panic attack. And so she was dealing with this fear and, and they didn't know what to do. There was counseling and it wasn't working. And so they um, intentionally began to search the word of God to try to find scriptures that dealt, a lot, uh, dealt with, with the idea of fear. So they, they searched the scriptures together and they wrote down verses that talked about being overcomers by being strong, by being steadfast and that our confidence is in the Lord and that he was gonna fight our battles. And they just wrote down like all the verses they could find, like 20, 30, 40, maybe more. And they wrote them down and put them in a place where she would read them every single morning. And he said, over a period of time, it wasn't instantaneous, but over a period of time, a few weeks, maybe a, a few short months, her anxieties, her fears were gone. She began to live in the confidence of God, not in her, and she didn't do it in her own strength. But what am I trying to say? The word of God will not return void. It is living, it is active, and there is power to it. And when we build our life upon it, it will have results. Now, if you're sitting here today and you're like, I just wanna get rich and it's all selfish ambition, probably not a good thing to try to use the scriptures to do that because you're gonna be confronted with Jesus and there's a verse where he's, he kind of tells this rich guy, hey, you gotta sell everything before you follow me. So you might run into that verse, okay? So we're gonna approach it with sincerity of heart. We're not gonna twist the scriptures to, and bend them into what we want. We're gonna place our life under its authority, the authority of God, and we're gonna say, God, I wanna live my life. I wanna build my life on your truth and your word. And when we do that, he promises healing, restoration. 
And that kind of leads me to my second part of that point. It's a, it's a sword to the enemy, but it's a scalpel to the believer. What do I mean by that? Well, Hebrews 4.12 says this, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of the joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, we have some people here that are really good, excuse me, at the process of discipleship, helping others understand what it means to walk with Jesus every day. And they use the scriptures to help bring people out of confusion into a place of confidence and truth. And that's definitely what this, this verse is talking about. But I also think that this is good for us personally. When we read the scriptures, it's like a scalpel to our own heart. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a surgeon's instrument to bring us healing. Anybody have surgery? Anybody, anybody like surgery? <laughs> Nobody? But you've had surgery. Anybody had surgery, like maybe something minor, maybe some, well, it's all, it's all major when it's, on, when it's you, right? I had shoulder surgery about 10 or 11 years ago, and I just didn't walk into some random building and be like, does anybody here know how to do a shoulder surgery? No, like I found a specialist who knew exactly what he was doing. He even specialized in shoulder surgery. And so I didn't place my life in the hands of anybody. I found somebody who was an expert. And then when I underwent the, the anesthesia and I, re, I remember falling asleep, I mean, that's, that's, not a, that's not a fun feeling, okay? But I was grateful that I was placing my shoulder in the hands of somebody who knew what they were doing. And the process of that surgery was not only a, a, a repair to, to re- restore the, the function of my shoulder, but I also went through physical therapy to re-strengthen and to regain my motion. I went through that whole process. The, the scalpel of the surgeon brought me healing and the scriptures will do the same. It will help us cut away some bitterness or some, something that's unhealthy or it will shine the light on bad habits. It will, it will allow us to really understand, okay, like we justify some of our words and our actions and we dress them up and we, and we, like, we say, well, I, this, is, this is really right and true, but the scriptures will often, when we're in them, it will shed light. No, that was a little bit selfish. That was a little bit prideful. You can be right with the wrong heart. Does that make sense? And the word of God will help us discern even when we can't see it initially ourselves. It'll help us discern the intentions of even our own heart. It's like a scalpel. What does God want? He wants our restoration and he wants us to be transformed. And that's kind of the next evidence. Just, just try it. If you're not sure you believe in the, in the word of God, if you're not sure it's truly trustworthy, try building your life on the truth of God and you can test this for yourself. Try it out and see if it has any kind of effect. If you try it out for three months or six months or a year and your life gets worse, you come and tell me. I would love to hear that, but I wouldn't love it, but that would, you would be the first one. Because I've done this long enough and I'm not very old, but I've done ministry long enough. I have yet to meet people who have built their life on the foundation of Christ and his word and regretted it. I've never met anybody who's gone all in and said, well, this was a giant mistake and the biggest waste of my time. It's cost me all kinds of money. If I could do one thing different, I would go back in time and forget this whole Bible Jesus thing. Not one person has ever talked to me about that. And I don't live in an echo chamber. I I have friends that, and I'm in the community. I meet people all the time that don't follow Jesus like I do. 
But you know what I have seen is people that haven't built their life on Jesus Christ and they haven't built their life on his word and they've regretted it and their life is broken and in shambles and they're wishing that if they could go back in time, they would start over with this process. What am I trying to say? The big point for today is if you love and follow Jesus, you will obey his commands. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it. He says, if you want to follow me, if you love me, if you say you're all about me, you will obey my commands. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was God with God. It's kind of confusing. What's it saying? Jesus is the word made flesh and he came and he dwelt among us. He is the word. And he's saying, if you want to follow me, if you love me, you will obey my commands. I'm out of time so quickly. If you are not reading the Bible, your next step is to simply start. Just start. This is not legalism. God is not mad at you, but he wants what's healthy for you. So if you're not in the word on a regular basis, just start. Get a reading plan. If you've started, Focus on getting familiar. Familiarize yourself with the scriptures. Maybe, it, maybe your next step is to read the whole Bible through in some form or fashion. If you've already done that, maybe your next step is to memorize. Commit key battle scriptures to memory to counter the lies of the enemy. Maybe you need to do something like that lady that dealt with her fears. Maybe there's something in your life that you need to, 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 to experience freedom from. So you're gonna search scriptures. You're gonna commit those to memory. You're gonna allow God to write his word on your heart. And then if you've already done that, I would invite you to specialize. Get really, really good when it comes to understanding scripture. You know, our Navy SEALs, um, man, that, they're an effective force. I'm proud of our military and I love, um, love the fact that we have military men and women who are specialized. They know exactly what they're doing and they're, they're the best in the world at it. What if you became the best in your world when it came to understanding and building your life on scripture? There are people in here that know the Bible probably better than me. And as I've already mentioned, there are people that I look at and they're, they're standing, they're, they're fully in love with Jesus, they're authentic, they're, they're the kind of person that lights up a room and they give life to anybody that comes in contact with them. And when trials and circumstances get thrown their way, they're, they're, they're steadfast, they're, un, they're unmovable. I promise you every single time they've built their life on the rock, which is the word of God. They've sought out Jesus, and they've said, you know what? I'm gonna obey his commands. That is my priority. We're gonna talk about the commands of Jesus, what he calls us to next week. So I hope you'll come back. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for the confidence it gives us. I pray that every person, myself included, would not waver from the idea of building our life on the foundation of your word, your truth, and ultimately, may we be in love with you. May we follow you and be willing to obey your commands. We know that that's the best way to live. It's not just right and good, it's better. And I thank you for it and I praise you in your name, amen. Thank you for your kind attention. I apologize for being a little academic, but I'll try to, I'll try to be a little, little better next week. So go fathers, dads, get your coffees, get your donuts, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much.